This is the scene. Meryl Streep sweeps into the room as the door closes behind her. It's the kind of room a wealthy home would have. All wood panels with a fireplace. There are expensive paintings on the walls framed in gold. And Meryl, she's alone. She's wearing a stunning flowing white caftan adorned with intricate gold embroidery. Her hair, a short bob, is swept up and brushed away from her face. The audience has just spent the past hour and a half watching Meryl Streep portray the publisher Catherine Graham struggling in the Washington Post newsroom of 1971. For the past 90 minutes, they watched her suffocated and stiff in conservative business suits that mirror the male-dominated world that surrounds her. But now, here, as she's hosting a party at her home, Catherine is confronted with a monumental decision. To publish or not to publish the Pentagon Papers in direct defiance of the U.S. government. As she stands in her hallway, holding the phone to her ear, her staff waiting for her to make the decision, she says, Let's, let's go. Let's, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's publish. Welcome back to A Love Letter 2. If you're new here, I'm your host, Daniela Lavario, and I'm a huge fan of fashion. And what I love most about it is when clothes tell a story. Nowhere is that more evident than in film and TV. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at A Love Letter 2 Podcast. Last week, we spoke about Morticia Adams and how she and her slinky black dress went against the mainstream when it came to what a housewife looked like. This week, we are going to talk about one of my favorite movies ever, The Post, and Meryl Streep's portrayal of the protagonist Catherine Graham. In particular, we're going to be talking about the golden caftan that we see in the most important scene of the movie. Of course, this episode is going to contain spoilers for the post, so if you haven't seen it yet, do watch the film before coming back here. Enjoy the show! First, let's talk about our protagonist, Catherine Graham, or Kay as she's known to her friends. Born Catherine Meyer, she was born in 1917 into a wealthy family in New York City. Her father was a financier and later chairman of the Federal Reserve, while her mother was a bohemian intellectual, art lover, and political activist who was friends with people like Auguste Rodin, Marie Curie, Albert Einstein, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Casual. Catherine's childhood was marked by privilege, but also separation from her parents. With her father's financial prowess, the family owned several homes across the country, but her parents' social and professional lives often kept them away. As a result, she was raised by nannies, governesses, and tutors. Her relationship with her mother, Agnes, was complicated, and Agnes's negativity and condescension took a toll on Catherine's self-confidence. As a child, Catherine attended a Montessori school and later the Potomac School. Her educational journey eventually led her to Vassar College before transferring to the University of Chicago. It was in Chicago that she developed an interest in labor issues and established friendships across diverse walks of life. 
After graduating, Catherine briefly worked at a San Francisco newspaper. But her true journey in the world of journalism began when she joined the Washington Post in 1938. On June 5, 1940, Catherine married Philip Graham, a Harvard Law School graduate and a Supreme Court Justice clerk. They had four children, and Philip would later become the publisher of the Washington Post in 1946, taking over from Catherine's father, Eugene Meyer. From this point on, Catherine becomes Philip's dedicated housewife. In her own book, Personal History, she writes, I resigned myself quite contentedly to the life of a vegetable. I went to cooking school in the morning, had lunch with friends, sat in the sun with other pregnant ladies, talked, gossiped, did everything in short that's in the books including laying out my husband's slippers and smoking jacket. I'm serious, I assure you. And the funniest part of all is that I liked it. But aside from being a housewife, Catherine also hosted parties at their Georgiantown mansion that become so popular that when she died, the Washington Post itself published an obituary titled Kay Graham's Last Party. Remember when I told you guys that her family growing up was very well connected? Well, Kay continued that tradition, making friends with politicians, billionaires, and really anyone influential. Truman Capote, who was America's novelist du jour, yes, but also a huge socialite at the time, threw his famous black and white ball, the most legendary party of the 20th century, in honor of Kay. The Bowery Boys podcast did an episode of this, which I'll link on the Spotify page of this episode because honestly, I just like listening to it when I'm sad. It's that good. After Kay died, socialite and post reporter Sally Quinn said, So many people have thought of the White House as the center of Washington. But the fact was, it was Kay's house that has been the center of Washington for so many years. Philip, Kay's husband, struggled with alcoholism and mental illness throughout their marriage, which strained the relationship. In 1963, he tragically took his own life, and Catherine took the reins of the Washington Post and became its president. Her leadership saw significant changes within the company, but perhaps Catherine Graham's most defining moment came during the Watergate scandal. The Post played a pivotal role in exposing the Watergate conspiracy, which ultimately led to the resignation of President Richard Nixon. Under Catherine's guidance, the newspaper published stories about Watergate when few others were reporting on the matter, and she stood by her reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. During this time, Catherine received a notorious threat from Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell. He warned reporter Carl Bernstein that, quote, Katie Graham's gonna get her tit caught in a big fat ringer if that's published. The Post published the quote but of course, without the explicit language. To say that Catherine Graham stepped into a male-dominated world when she took the helm at the Washington Post would be an understatement. And this is precisely what The Post delves into. The film transports us to a pivotal moment in American journalism and history. Set in the early 1970s, just after Kay takes over the company, The Post is a thrilling political drama that centers on the publishing of the Pentagon Papers, a top-secret government report that revealed the United States' controversial involvement in the Vietnam War. 
the decision to publish these classified documents would have far-reaching consequences, and the film follows these brave individuals who dared to defy the status quo. At the heart of this story, of course, is Catherine Graham, portrayed by the incomparable Meryl Streep. As the first female publisher of a major American newspaper, we see Catherine navigating a predominantly male world, battling societal expectations and self-doubt. Meryl Streep's portrayal of Catherine Graham is nothing short of remarkable, capturing the essence of a woman who found her voice and rose to the occasion when it mattered most. To fully understand the effect that the Golden Captain had in the climax of this film, I have to talk you guys through what makes up most of Meryl Streep's wardrobe in this movie. Aside from scenes of her at home or meeting up with friends, we mostly see Meryl wearing the conservative business attire that was essentially the female equivalent of men's suits at the time. So skirt suits with high necks, blazers, or shirt dresses. The colors, especially in the beginning before Kay grows into her own confidence, are very muted. A lot of colors that fade into the background, a lot of beiges and grays. Remember, this was the 70s, just before the era of 80s power suit dressing, but just after women have been folded into the workforce. Already though, here in a 70s newsroom, we're seeing the pattern of women asserting themselves by adopting masculine traits. Aside from Kate, there's one other female reporter in the newsroom and you can definitely see that she holds herself in an almost aggressive way just to make sure that she won't be stepped on. And in the beginning of the movie, we see that this is what Kay tries to do, but fails to do, because it's not her. In her memoir, Kay speaks of this, how she had no female role models and had difficulty being taken seriously by many of her male colleagues and employees. In the book, she talks of her lack of confidence and distrust in her own knowledge. Elsewhere, she says the same. Here's an excerpt from a piece she wrote from the Washington Post in 1997. I adopted the assumption of many of my generation that women were intellectually inferior to men, that we were not capable of governing, leading, managing anything but our homes and our children. Once married, we were confined to running houses, providing a smooth atmosphere, dealing with children, supporting our husbands. Pretty soon, this kind of thinking, indeed this kind of life, took its toll. Most of us became somehow inferior. We grew less able to keep up with what was happening in the world. In a group, we remained largely silent, unable to participate in conversations and discussions. Unfortunately, this incapacity often produced in women, as it did in me, a diffuse way of talking, an inability to be concise, a tendency to ramble, to start at the end and work backwards, to over-explain, to go on for too long, to apologize. In the same piece, she talks about her struggle in even understanding that she could take over the company. With her husband ill, she speaks with a friend about hanging on to the paper until her sons were old enough to run it. She writes, I recall Luvi firmly and distinctly saying, Don't be silly, dear. You can do it. Me? I exclaimed. That's impossible. I couldn't possibly do it. You don't know how hard and complicated it is. There's no way I could do it. Of course you can do it, she maintained. And to counter my disclaimers of impossibility, Luby added, You've got all those genes. It's ridiculous to think you can't do it. 
you've just been pushed down so far you don't recognize what you can do. Like other women, I suffered from an exaggerated desire to please, a syndrome so instilled in women of my generation that it inhibited my behavior for many years and in ways still does. Although at the time, I didn't realize what was happening, I was unable to make a decision that might displease those around me. For years, whatever directive I may have issued ended with the phrase, if it's alright with you. So yes, Catherine was a trailblazing woman who shattered the glass ceiling. But I think it would be unfair to wax poetic about her accomplishments without acknowledging that while she spoke passionately about women's rights, her newspaper, The Washington Post, fell short of fully embracing the feminist agenda. During her tenure, the company lacked essential facilities such as a daycare center and provided only minimal maternity leave. Part-time work options for women were scarce and part-time employees were ineligible for races. The paper also faced an Equal Employment Opportunity Commission sex discrimination suit related to hiring, pay, promotions, and leave for its female news employees. This highlighted the gap between Catherine's personal beliefs and her company's policies. In essence, while Catherine Graham was sympathetic to women's issues, the pay, benefits, and day-to-day -day operations of her company did not reflect feminist principles. But let's get back to the movie and to the scene. By this point, the whole film has taken us on a journey as Catherine and the post-editor Ben Bradley grapple with the ethical and legal implications of publishing the Pentagon Papers, even after the Nixon administration had already barred the New York Times from doing so. Will they follow the president's orders or publish the truth for the American population to read? The stakes are high. They risk not just their careers, but their employees' careers, the reputation of the newspaper, and of course, there are legal consequences to think about. On the night that the team decides whether or not to publish, Kay is hosting one of her famous parties, and she wears the golden caftan. It's very hard to describe the glow that this caftan has, but it's more like a gold hue rather than being actually gold. It's shimmering, it's billowing in the wind as Meryl walks, there's this sort of brocade pattern down the front and the back, and the sleeves have jeweled accents. She looks almost like an angel you would put on top of your Christmas tree. So she's in the middle of toasting for whom she's throwing this party when she's interrupted and asked that she go to the phone immediately. She goes into a room separate from the male advisors she's had all movie, and as the maid closes the door, for the first time she's physically alone. Yes, she has a cacophony of male voices in her ear telling her what to do and what not to do, but the physical distance that Kay had to the rest of them reflects that it's she who has to make this decision, to publish or not to publish, and she's alone. She's visibly scared, she's shaking, she's crying. But after a moment of silence, she blinks back tears and stammers out, Let's, let's go, let's, let's do it, let's, let's, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's, let's publish. This was the shining moment in the film, and the caftan that she wears becomes a symbol of her resolve. In it, Meryl looks like a Grecian goddess, powerful and feminine. It's a stark contrast to the stuffy battle armor she typically wears to fit into the male workplace. 
Plus, she's completely in her element as the host of this party, completely the opposite of what she's like in those boardrooms. So for one, it's a powerful statement that challenges the notion that female leaders must look or be a certain way to be taken seriously. That one can be glamorous and care about their appearance and be a leader at the same time. But also, knowing the Kay that we know in the film as this quiet, almost sort of mousy character, we see why the quiet elegance of the captain works so well. It's not flashy, it's not giving Las Vegas, it's not giving Donald Trump's golden toilet seat. Instead, the captain allows Meryl Streep to radiate a subtle, understated glow instead of looking gaudy. The captain, in my opinion, perfectly mirrors Kay's character arc throughout the story. Her journey towards self-confidence wasn't a quick overnight transformation, it was a gradual process. And even as she discovers the newfound resolve within herself during this particular scene, it remains a quiet, unassuming determination, emblematic of her character's resilience and growth. Kay ends up exuding both power and femininity in equal measure. After the scene, we see Kay wear more patterns and colors as she grows into her confidence in the newsroom. When this movie came out in 2017, that caftan quickly became the talk of the town. Joe Reed, now one of the hosts of the podcast This Had Oscar Buzz, tweeted, Whomever described Meryl's gold caftan in the post as the green dress in atonement of caftans, by God, no one has ever been more right. Britt Hayes, who was then working as the associate editor for Screen Crush, had the same Christmas tree angel observation I had, saying, Meryl Streep's magnificent caftan in the post makes her look like the angel from Nancy Meyer's Christmas tree came to life to teach us a lesson about the First Amendment. The caftan was designed and sewn by costume designer Anne Ross. If you watched the Barbie movie, you probably know Anne. She's the older woman that Barbie sits beside on the bench. Barbie tells her that she looks beautiful, and she responds, I know. Anne Roth is a legend in the costume design scene, and at 92, she's showing no signs of stopping. Variety predicts that she will be nominated for an Oscar in 2024 for her work in Kelly Freeman Craig's Are You There God? It's Me, Margaret. Anne made all of Meryl's costumes from scratch because of the tight schedule. She decided to go for a caftan for this pivotal moment, not really thinking about what it stood for in the film, but looking at it in a very much logical way. Kay was hosting a retirement party, and so she would have been wearing something appropriate for such a party. She did an interview with The Hollywood Reporter for this film, and I highly recommend anyone interested in costume design to read it. Because what's even more interesting is that while Streep's costumes were essential, it was the background players, particularly a group of college-age protesters, that was a significant challenge for Anne Roth. She didn't want the film to feel like that amusing 70s show. So there you have it, the story of the caftan that stole my heart. It's a testament to the power of clothing in storytelling, especially in film, and a reminder that a costume can be so much more than just a piece of fabric. That's it for today's episode of A Love Letter 2. Thank you for joining us again on this fashion-filled journey. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening. It really helps us a lot. 
Also, once again, don't forget to follow us on our socials. We're on Instagram and TikTok at a love letter to podcast on both. Bye for now.